In today's episode, I talk about divisions within the church, how they're nothing new, and how we can forge a path forward together. You know, I'm a little sad. I just got brushed off by this guy in the street uh, today. I saw him. He was carrying a nine-foot-tall book. And I was like, what is that? And he was like, it's a long story. (sighs) So anyway, uh, welcome to episode 91. So glad to be with you all. Thank you for listening. Um, If this is your first time listening, wonderful. Welcome. So great to have you. And if you're an ongoing listener, thank you for continuing to listen. Please make sure you um, share this episode. The highest compliment you can pay is to share this episode with your friends, particularly on social media. Make sure if you have not yet done so, I say this all the time, and you're probably, you, you know it's you if you haven't done it, but please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. It does help people find it. Um, And lastly, if you'd like to support us in any way financially, it does cost money to put this podcast on, please go to manafoodforthought.com and click on the Patreon tab, and you can become a financial patron for as little as $1 a month. And all of our other content there is on our website as well. Um, With all that said, without further ado, let's get into this episode, starting with our peak pit and plug. My peak is I am home finally after three and a half months of a water leak and renovations and everything possibly going wrong and every person entering our house breaking something else things are finally all entirely fixed and we are home now um the pit of that situation is there's so much to do so much stuff to go through and reorganize as we were coming in and out and moving things around for the renovation um stuff is in a little bit of a disarray. Now, if you know me, you know that my disarray is like the average person's organized. And so it's, it looks fine in our house, but I definitely still have this itch to go through everything. And, uh, I know that we can survive without most of the stuff in our house. So, um, we're trying to, to do that. So, there's that. But another pit, um, you remember my former co-host, Jenna, my best friend, um, her son recently had spinal surgery. Everything went well. He's recovering well. Um, but if you could just continue to pray for him and his ongoing um, you know, procedures and things like that, um, that would be wonderful. I'm sure she would appreciate it. Um, so those are my peak and pit. My plug, I'm reading a wonderful book. I know um, it's been around for a little bit and people have um, recommended it to me before. It's very good, but it is called The Power of Silence Against the Dictatorship of Noise. It is by Robert Cardinal Sarah. Highly recommend it. I may be two-thirds of the way through, maybe. Um, it's, a lo- it's a bit longer book. It's a little repetitive and dense, but the general idea and how to enter into silence and the value of silence and how we have so little of that in our world is so well uh, put and just the, I would highly recommend you read the prologue or introduction as to how this book came about. That is like one of the most moving parts. So, anyway, I won't give you any spoilers, but that is something I I offer to you that I am greatly enjoying. Also, want to apologize if you through any point in this episode hear the fan on my computer going because it seems to be overworking itself, or if you hear people outside working on the balcony of the townhome near us that they are replacing saws and wood and sounds. All of that is going on in the midst of this day. So um, hopefully that doesn't bother us too much. But I want to get into this episode. This episode uh, it was inspired by an article that um, was written by Bishop Robert Barron, but it reminded me of um, just some other things first I want to get into. So 
Um, it reminded me of, I'll tell you what the article was about in a moment, but um, there's this German philosopher named Hegel, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and he lived from 1770 to 1831. He was the most important figure in German idealism, in that branch of, of thought and philosophy. He's considered one of the most fundamental figures of modern Western philosophy, um, and he's had a lot of, you know, physical influences, um, or not physical, philosophical influence um, on a variety of issues uh, in politics, ontology, aesthetics, um, all different traditions of philosophy. But he had this idea that, um, you know, in society, and, and really in any, I, I, I think, I don't, I'm, I'm more of an amateur and a novice to philosophy than I am theology, even though there's a lot of overlap. I know a lot of the theological overlap, but this is more of a conceptual thing. But he had this idea that I think in, in any circumstance, in the environment, in our culture, and in the world in particular, um, that there's this movement that happens cyclically throughout time of thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. That's a tongue twister. Thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So basically what that means is one movement or one action will arise. Uh, and so let's take the church, for instance, because that's what we're talking about. There'll be a movement within the church. And then that's the thesis. And then all of a sudden there's this anti-movement, the antithesis, saying, oh, there's something wrong with that. We need to be protective. We need to um, shy away from the things that we see um, that are potentially problematic with this. And so we're going to do this. And then eventually there is a blending of the two, which is called the synthesis. When finally, like the division just no longer is prominent, prevalent, necessary. They realize that the other people are not crazy and they actually sit down and talk to each other, whatever it requires. But he has this, you know, had this, um, hypothesis, <laughs> hypothesis, on thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. We're going to write a, a really boring rap song here. But anyways, and I, when I read this article by Bishop Robert Barron, it reminded me of that idea. And it also reminded me of um, G.K. Chesterton's book on St. Francis of Assisi. In the very first chapter, one of the first chapters, he talks about how this happened in the early church and in the medieval era that led to kind of the uh, anomaly of the person of St. Francis. And so he basically said that within the church, in the early, in the early church, there was this movement in the church um, there was this movement in religion at the time, not necessarily Christian religion, but to have a very kind of um, closeness to nature. And I mean, if you remember in the Jewish tradition, there was like all these animal sacrifices and sacrifices of cereal and grain offerings. And you have that obviously in a lot of pagan religions, um, a, a much deeper and more ingrained um, attachment to nature and everything in nature has its own God or goddess and all of these things. And so in an effort that was kind of a thesis. And then in an effort in the early church of Christianity to separate itself from a lot of the pagan practices and even Jewish practices, um, there was this kind of antithesis to that to where um, things became very ascetic. So people fasted from things. They, they weren't looking for worldly attachments, things of the world, attachment to the world. There was a lot of withdrawing to the desert. You have the desert fathers and desert mothers. You have the monastic system developing. I'm talking the first several hundred years of the church, all these things are happening. Um, and so you have kind of a turning away from this form of almost like nature worship. And you have um, this ascetic practice happening. Now, after you know several hundred years of this ascetic practice and all through kind of like what's typically called the Dark Ages, even though it's not a very fair name for the time, um, 
Finally, we have the ability for these two kind of ideas to blend, and they blend perfectly in St. Francis, where he has this very deep spirituality toward nature, an attachment toward nature, but it is not a nature worship. It is a worship of God that recognizes God's um, presence in nature and also retains a lot of those deep ascetic principles of fasting and abstinence and prayer and almsgiving. And so um, it just reminded me kind of of this movement of like there's this side and then another side develops and eventually they move together. Um, And so there's just um, um, a need for a return to the, I don't know, the recognition of this, this blending that needs to happen as we've seen many times throughout church history. Um, and that we have to be be conscious of that. And so, um, anyway, Bishop Robert Barron he, he wrote this article, and um, it was it was if you follow closely these kind of um, niche Catholic things, um, then you've probably already read this and seen all of the comments and all of the you know hubbub about it. But he writes this article that was very critical of this kind of um, resurgence in very traditional and um, it's called radically traditional Catholicism. Sometimes these people are called trads or rad trads. Um, And it's this very like hyper conservative, hyper pre Vatican II, wanting to return to those type of ideals, type of Catholicism. Um, People who really love, and I'm I'm not saying anyone who, appreciates uh, traditional Catholicism is in this category, but those who are these kind of radical traditional Catholics um, only like think there's value in the traditional Latin mass. They don't um, think that it's proper to celebrate uh, mass in the, the normal vernacular language. They question the authority or even reject the authority sometimes of the current Pope, Pope Francis. Um, and and there's, a, there's a big range in there, but um, a lot of them have found a huge voice on social media. And so Bishop Robert Barron, he has this ministry, this online media ministry called Word on Fire. And he says in this article that it started because it was a reaction against this kind of beige liberal Catholicism that he saw being lived out in the world where people just didn't know their faith. They didn't care. They were, you know, living just a very dull or beige version of the fullness of the truth of Catholicism. However, He says this in this article, In recent years, a fiercely traditionalist movement has emerged within American Catholicism, finding a home particularly in the social media space. It has come about partly as a reaction to the same beige Catholicism that I have criticized, but its ferocity is due to the scandals that have shaken the church the past 30 years, especially the McCarrick situation. In their anger and frustration, some of it justified, these arch-traditionalist Catholics have become nostalgic for the church of the preconciliar period and antipathetic toward the Second Vatican Council itself and then the popes that follow. He goes on to say um, that, uh, where is it? Um, the supreme irony, of course, is that these radically traditionalist Catholics, in their resistance to the authority of the Pope and their denial of the legitimacy of an ecumenical council, have risked stepping outside the confines of the church. Theirs is not a beige Catholicism, to be sure, but it is indeed a self-devouring Catholicism. Perhaps sensing this contradiction, they remain spitting mad at anyone who would dare challenge them. And so, 
he, he goes on to basically say this kind of self-devouring, self-consuming Catholicism is just as bad as beige Catholicism. Like we can't go either way. And so it just reminded me of that thing from Hegel, uh, Hegel of this thesis of kind of a more progressive contemporary Catholicism coming out of um, the Second Vatican Council, taking more liberties than the council intended or allowed. Um, and then this antithesis movement of radical traditional Catholicism, and they're just kind of pitted against each other. We see that we saw that come to play within the Catholic world in this last election, this last election year, um, and particularly in Trump's presidency, um, because a lot of those rad, um, rad trads aligned with um, Trump and with, you know, the maybe not with him, but with the Republican Party because of certain values the Republican Party has that they just steadfastly hold to. And so, um, there's just been this big division, this big either or it has to be this way or that way. Um, people saying like, if you're Catholic, you cannot vote for Joe Biden. Like it has to be this way, it has to be this way. I'm not telling you how you should have voted or how you should vote. That's not the business of Catholics. In fact, it says that in church documents, bishops can't even tell you, priests can't even tell you how you're supposed to vote, but they can inform you about Catholic social teaching and Catholic, um, moral ethics and values. Um, so I, I don't know. I just want to point out, first of all, that this is like what Bishop Robert Barron did here. This is real fraternal correction. You know, sometimes people use the principles of fraternal correction in the Bible to like just correct and judge whoever they want. And that is not how it's meant to be done. This is in Matthew chapter 18. Um, in verses, verse 15, it starts, it says, if your brother sins against you, meaning another baptized believer, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. And then it goes on to, you know, to talk about the importance of doing this. And if they don't listen, then, you know, they, you've done your due diligence, basically. Um, and so I'm sure... I'm sure being a media presence that Bishop Robert Barron is, he's dealt with a lot of these people individually, has probably had personal conversations with them, tried to correct them. And at some point, him being having the influence that he does, the authority he does as a bishop needs to point out this kind of division that's going on. And uh, I've heard it characterized this way before, that when it comes to the gospel and living out the gospel as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have three choices. You can either withdraw from society, conform to society, or seek to change society. And so this kind of radical traditionalist movement was very much like historically that um, that movement that was completely against nature worship and paganism, which is we're going to withdraw from the world. We're going to go into monasteries. We're going to go into this traditionalist type of life or Catholicism, and we're just going to we're just going to be on communes or be in our own little, you know, traditional Latin masses and, and nothing else is valid. Nothing else, you know, can penetrate this, this bubble that we have created. And that those groups are particularly critical of those who would seek to conform to society and say, oh, no, we, do, we need to be living in the world. We need to look like the world. We need to, you know, do these things because those movements tend to compromise certain values or fail to emphasize or speak truth of certain doctrines of the church so as not to appear unfavorable or, um, you know, unlikable in, in the eyes of the world. But there's a problem there, too, because the church always is meant to be set apart. That's what the word holy means, kadosh in Hebrew. We have to be set apart. So the real 
the real thing that Jesus came to do and the real thing that we should be called to do is that third approach, which is to seek to change the world that we live in by holding fast to our values and the teachings of the church, but by recognizing that seeking to change the world means we need to be in dialogue and relationship with the world. We need to know about it. We need to have a bridge that's built from the church to the world. It has to be one that is hospitable to cross, is approachable, and is not so abrasive or rejecting of all things in society or openly embracing anything that flows through the doors and says just like, hey, everything's okay, everything goes. Uh, you don't need to, to worry about, you know, changing your sinful habits. Like, no, like, but, but there's a specific order to that conversation, you know? So I've talked about a lot of this before, and this is all over scripture, right? Like that we... We can't conform to society. Romans 12, 2, do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In you know, John 18, 36, Jesus says, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. Um, so we're not going to find that here in the world. That's why there is a benefit to recognizing we still need to be set apart. We still need to have that sense of like, no, we're not one with the world, but we are meant to be in this world. So I don't know if you've seen that those like not of this world stickers. Um, and so not of this world kind of is like, oh, we're withdrawing from the world. Um, but really the appropriate phrase is not of this world, but in it. We're not of this world, but we are in it. We've been placed in it. For a particular reason, if, and if our citizenship is not here, as it says in scripture, then we need to recognize like we have an opportunity, a job, a mission here to tell everyone and to seek to change society, to know the truths of Jesus Christ, that he came to save us, to die for our sins. Um, we cannot have this kind of open embrace love for all the earthly things and just kind of tolerate every single behavior. We need to be welcoming. We need to have appropriate tact and ability to have the right conversations at the right times. And I think part of the reason that a lot of the traditionalist Catholics um, uh, come off as very abrasive, judgmental, or unapproachable is because they tend to have a lot of these conversations right up front. Like, hey, you can't do this. That's not okay. You can't do that. This is what it says in the Bible. You know, if you don't like that, then I guess you're going to hell kind of mentality. Um, and I'm being very general here, but it just it it is it does tend toward that type of um, that type of attitude. Um, whereas in more of the kind of modern progressive or um, contemporary movements, it's more of like, oh, Jesus just loved everyone, so just like you know, Jesus just loves you like as you are. And there's a middle ground there that I think we need to walk in. And it's this phrase that I think I said in the last episode or one of the last episodes that I've been praying about a lot, and that's that you do not need to change to receive God's love, but when you receive God's love, it will change you. You do not need to change to receive God's love, but when you receive God's love, it will change you. So, yeah, we don't need to reject everything completely in society up front or at all. There's some good things in society and in the world. God created the world, for crying out loud. So, um, we can't reject all of it, but we need to be tactful about when we have those conversations. And so, um, I don't know. I just, I really appreciated this article from Bishop Robert Barron and I, my wife showed it to me and I was just, I was very grateful that someone in the public eye, um, and who's a very influential and very well followed, well spoken and authoritative. He's a bishop, authoritative person in the Catholic church 
found a way to speak into this middle ground, this gray area. I try to do this too. And, you know, to tell you the truth, many people have probably stopped listening or talk about me behind my back instead of actually calling me up and having a conversation about it. Instead, it's probably easier to just write me off um, or much more influential people off. You know, I'm not, I don't have thousands of followers or anything um, because it's easy to write any of them or any of us off because people might be too afraid to change. They might be threatened. And so instead we just complain that that person, oh, they either went too far or they didn't say enough, right? Depending on our particular stance. That's always kind of in the Catholic world when anyone is speaking about anything, even all the way up to the Pope, the criticisms are always, um, oh, they either went too far or they didn't say enough, right? And this middle ground is just taking and receiving and recognizing everything is said in a context. And not every statement needs to be a definitive, full doctrinal statement of everything the church stands for. Like you're speaking into a moment. And I don't know, I just, I feel like this middle ground, this gray area, this area of synthesis, in the words of Hegel, the philosopher, uh, of these two things coming together, the good in both coming together, not to withdraw, not to conform, but to seek to change the Catholic culture and the way that Catholics are on mission in the world, is something that I've always been very passionate about, my wife and I are, are very passionate about, and we want to do this. And so, I don't know. What do you think about that? Like we, we've been thinking about rebranding this podcast, starting a new podcast, starting a whole new ministry brand of just speaking into the gray area, the real life, not this kind of traditionalist perfect. You have to have all of it together, obey every single doctrine to a T because that's not possible. Y'all nobody does that. People just pretend they do. Nobody is, is completely at all capable of doing that. The standard that we have as Catholics is perfection. You'll never get there until heaven. There's certain things you will never be able to be free of until purgatory. So like that's a high standard, but we also can't be fast and loose and just be like, ah, whatever, you know, the mercy of God is endless. It's like, no, we still have free will. We still need to know. We can know based on just the world and natural reason and natural law, what's true. And we need to live in conformity to that but there is a big gray area and there's a lot of gray area situations that a black and white doctrine yes that's okay or no that's not okay doesn't always apply to and so i know my wife and i've have talked for many months about creating something uh, some place where we can create content have conversations that are all about this kind of gray area what kind of synthesis could we create appreciating a lot of the beauty and aesthetics and um, value and conformity to uh, to doctrine uh, in the traditionalist movement, and also this this very relational, hospitable, and welcoming nature of the more modern and contemporary movements of Catholicism, and the things that we can learn from society on how to be engaging, on how to help people to be more formed in their faith, to be better catechized and better evangelized. And so, we want to, I don't know, we want to find a place to do that. So. I don't know. Do you think that's a good idea? You know, should we do this? Tell me, tell us, email the podcast. Otherwise, you know, my suspicions will be confirmed that no one's actually listening to this but me, which is totally fine. I have no problem coming on here once every two weeks and just, you know, dear diarying it, just me and Jesus. You know, this isn't about me or, or my wife or how many followers we have now or will have in the future. Doesn't matter to me at all. Um, but I, I'd like to know if you would feel like that would help you. You know, or if you, you know, I don't know if you've got ideas along that, that, that line that inspires anything in you, any particular topic or issue you think that would be a beneficial 
approach for. Um, I mean, this this podcast apparently, according to our analytics, has over a thousand weekly subscribers. So, you know, go to at Mana Food for Thought on Instagram or go to our website www.manafoodforthought.com and email the podcast. Leave a comment. Leave a message on this episode. Email us directly. Go to our Instagram, make a comment. Let me know, what do you think about that? What do you think about this synthesis, this opportunity to bring the thesis and antithesis together and create a brand that is for real people in real life, like real Catholics living in the real world and not these kind of compromising out in the world or just kind of receding from the world and acting like we can create this perfect Catholic commune somewhere Um, because none of those are realistic. And my wife particularly wants to speak into the way that that's characterized with women in in the Catholic world. You know, you either have women who are, um, you know, completely out there working and living kind of a worldly life, or you have Catholic women, I'm talking about Catholic influencers who are women, or you have a lot of the Catholic influencers who are female who are like, you know, I homeschool all, you know, 10 of my kids and I have an Etsy shop of Catholic content and... I veil and I go to traditional Latin mass and, you know, and that's, those things are beautiful. I'm not being critical, but I think it just shows that there's like kind of this big divide between the two types of female voices that are out there in the church. And my wife really is like, well, I, I love being a mom. I love being home and taking care of our kids, but I also feel called to work and she's a professor and she's a very good one. And so we're always balancing that. And, and I'm balancing that too. I want to be, I mean, I would love to be a stay at home dad for the rest of my life. That would be so dope. But, um, you know, bills are a thing. So, um, so who knew? But, you know, so we're trying to navigate, like, what does that look like? And she def- she doesn't feel like there's a lot of female Catholic voices out there speaking into that gray area. I don't feel like there's a lot of voices in general. Praise God for Bishop Barron's article. But other than that, not a lot of voices in general speaking to this area. I see a lot of leaning to one way or another, um, which, you know, I, is fine because there's good things in both. There's beautiful things on both sides, but there's also problems. And there's also ways that we need to find a common ground and see what we're lacking in the value of the other side. So anyways, if you think, if you relate to that, if you think that's interesting, if you think we should go some route like that, any ideas, or you just want to be like, thumbs up, you do it. Hurrah, hurrah. Uh, let us know. Cause that would be greatly encouraging to know people are still listening. People would care for that. And if they don't, and if no one's listening, that is helpful for me to know because maybe I don't need to be doing this. So maybe God's calling me to something else. Anyway, um, a saint that I want to leave you with for this kind of, um, this, this concept and this episode, if you feel, um, maybe unrepresented as a Catholic, or you feel, um, like you're constantly in the midst of this division in the church or in the world, and you really don't know which way to go. Um, there's a great saint named St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, he's a church father. He was actually, he was born in 130 AD. So just a hundred years after Jesus um, in Smyrna, which is a modern day Turkey. And he lived until 202 and uh, he died in Lyon in France. And his feast day is June 28th. He was the Bishop of Lyon in France. He, as I said, he's one of the church fathers. That's a group of very influential um, leaders, theologians, and writers in the early church, probably the first four or five centuries of the church. And Irenaeus was interesting because unlike a lot of his contemporaries, he was brought up in a Christian family. A lot of people were still converting as adults. And he was actually taught by St. Polycarp, 
who was taught by the apostle John. And so he's just like two people removed or one person removed, I guess, from the apostles. He was born in St. Polycarp's hometown in Smyrna, and he eventually became a priest and he grew some Christian communities in what is now Southern France. And um, he was a priest in Lyon during the persecutions of the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, who you may have heard of. And all the clergy in that city, many of whom were suffering imprisonment for their faith, they ended up sending him to Rome uh, in 177 with a letter to the Pope, Pope Eulotherius at the time, um, and it was concerning a particular heresy. So it wasn't even about like, hey, we're being persecuted and martyred over here. It was like, hey, we want to really make sure that people have the message of, of Catholicism correctly, that we are making sure we are conforming um, or that we are teaching properly, that we're conforming to the, the values of the church. This is very like kind of a traditionalist type of move here. Like, let's make sure that we're not falling into heresy. So, but while Irenaeus was in Rome, um, th this persecution took place in Lyon, and um, he eventually returned, and he he succeeded someone who was martyred, Saint Pothinus, um, who was the first bishop of Lyon, which I think is like crazy. Like, it's like, hey, um, do you want this job? The last guy, the first guy who had it, he died. Do you want to do exactly what he was doing? But <laughs> Saint Irenaeus said yes. He became the second bishop ever of Lyon. And um, there was a period of religious peace that ended up following that persecution. And so Irenaeus, he ended up dividing his activities between his duties as a pastor and as being a missionary. Um, and we, we don't have very much data um, about what he did. We have a little that is very late in his life, but we're really not certain about it. Um, but almost all of his writings were directed against heresies, particularly the heresy of Gnosticism. Um, and he writes that there were these followers of some guy named Marcus the Magician living and teaching in the valley of that time. And so he's very much like someone who appreciated the tradition of the, the teachings of the church, speaking against kind of the worldly ways that this was being uh, realized and being compromised. And he wrote a lot of Christian theology combating heresies um, and defining orthodoxy. In fact, his best-known work is called Against Heresies to counter some of those um, heretical Gnostic groups claiming they had secret wisdom. Um, and he offered, you know, uh, these pillars of orthodoxy, the scriptures, tradition handed down from the apostles and the teaching of the apostles' successors. Um, but he still had this missionary spirit to go out, to be in the world, to be in the midst of persecution, to be in a position where the last guy died and these people need someone to lead them. Um, and and not much is really known about him other than that. Um, nobody knows um, necessarily the exact date of his um, his death, but we know it must have occurred somewhere around 202. And he's regarded as a martyr, that he's considered historically that he was killed for his faith. But we don't know why, we don't know um, what. But he, so he, he didn't withdraw into these hyper-exclusive or fad movements like Gnosticism. And he did not give up his authentic witness to the faith in the face of persecution. I think he found this synthesis. Um, you may have heard of him before because he's famous for saying, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's his like most often quoted Thing. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. However, I want to sh close with one other quote from him, which is from Against Heresies. And he says, uh, For it is not needful to use a common proverb that one should drink up the ocean who wishes to learn that its water is salt. 
And I really like that because it encapsulates this. You don't need to consume everything of a particular movement or situation in front of you to glean what is good or knowledgeable about it. So you don't need to go extreme right, extreme left, extreme traditional, extreme modern. You can look at them and say, okay, what do I need to know about these things? How do I have a conformity to orthodoxy, to doctrine, but still be present to live out my faith boldly in the world, no matter what persecution I face and be willing to go where other people won't be willing to meet people where they are and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think Irenaeus did that really well. So if you have any feelings about this and living this out, you know, this kind of synthesis or feel maybe drawn to one side or the other and find difficulty with the gray area, find difficulty seeing or understanding the point of view of quote unquote, the other side, then I would encourage you to pray for the intercession of St. Irenaeus of Leon. And if this is something that you're just like, well, I had no idea that was going on, then just pray for his intercession that we can be more commonly united in the world and especially in our church. So that's all I have for you this uh, episode. I hope you are listening and finding it blessed. I hope you are blessed as you're listening. That was a weird way of saying that, but I hope the Lord blesses you in this moment. Um, I hope you know how much he loves you. I hope you know... um, yeah, just, just how good he sees you, how he delights in you, and how he delights in all of his children, and how he desires for his children to be unified, to be one, to be working together to provide for the needs of one another, and not be so divided um, in things that really end up in the long run being kind of trivial, you know? Yes, doctrines are important, church practice is important, um, but being the body of Christ, like, that's who we're created to be, and, and there's there's a lot of gray area. There is doctrines and dogmas that we do not compromise on that are they're, they're, they seem black and white. They seem either or. But in Catholicism, it is always both and. There's almost no situation or teaching I can think of where in the church it's like, all right, yes, this is what we believe. But in certain circumstances, this is also allowed for. I mean, I'm reading canon law right now. And like every single canon has like these caveats. Like, but in this situation, you might be able to do this. Or if the bishop says that you can change this, you can. You know, like there's there's so many of those types of situations. So um, very fundamental dogmas, like the things in the creed, no, never going to change those. The sacraments, no, never going to change those. They came from Christ himself. Um, but so many other practices that we have, um, not teachings, but practices that come from those teachings, they've changed over time. They evolve. They can be done differently. And they've been done differently in the past. And so, I don't know. I just want to emphasize the fact that I think there's a whole lot of gray area out there and not a lot of people speaking into it. So if you think that would be valuable, let me know. And if I don't hear anything, I'll shut up about it or just talk to my friends about it. So anyway, you are my friends, but um, I can just do that and I can just call you and do it. So anyways, I'm going to stop blubbering on. Good to be with you. Um, I'm praying for you. Please continue to pray for me and my family and... Until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. Bye.